still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me. When the world all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name and the road marked with suffering, through the pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord. Still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Hallelujah. We bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord of my soul, O oh Jesus. Thank you, Father. We bless your name, O oh Jesus. Hallelujah. He came to live, live a perfect life. He came to be the living word of life. He came to die so we could reconcile. He came to rise to show his power and might. That's why we praise him. That's why we sing. That's why we offer him our everything. 
That's why we bow down and worship this King. Cause He gave His everything. Cause He gave His everything. He came to live, live again in us. He came to be our conquering king and friend. He came to heal and show the lost ones his love. He came to go, prepare a place for us. That's why we praise him. And that's why we sing. And that's why we Here this. Is- 
embraces from a grateful heart. It's time I think of you. Oh, love's for 
to serve God all the glory and honor. As we worship you, Lord, we humble the hearts before you, Jesus. Fill with this place with your Holy Ghost. Anoint this place of Jesus. Wave this place with your Holy Ghost. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Oh, we worship you, Holy Spirit. Give us a pure heart of Jesus. As we worship the Lord, give us a pure heart.
Zoom meeting for the Wednesday night um, uh, prayer meeting, if you want to be part of that. Brothers and sisters in the uh, live streaming right now, we, uh, we are inviting you to this uh, Zoom meeting for uh, Wednesday night. You can log in at mypcf.org slash events dash one. There you go, to get your login password. Amen. Of course, uh, this Holy Week, let's continue to prioritize prayer. Amen, amen. Try completing on Easter devotional scripture reading plan this week. There you go. Then, of course, we have the Good Friday service this Friday, April 2 at 7.30 p.m. in the PCF uh, sanctuary, sanctuary. And, of course, we will uh, have that live online at mypcf.org. And then... New PSOM class still open to join. Participate online via Zoom. 
Fundamentals of Faith, Part 4. Hallelujah. Let me just tell you that uh, uh, if you haven't um, um, been to the class 1, 2, 3, it's okay. You can still participate in this uh, Fundamentals of Faith, Part 4. And that is uh, happening every Sundays at 1 to 3.15 p.m. with Pastor Courtney. Subjects of study, covenants, and destiny. Wow, I love that. Covenants and destiny. Prophets and prophecy. Revelation and eternity. Wow. Amen. Future. Future. Amen. Note, this class will not meet next Sunday, April 4, due to Easter. For more details or to register, email info at mypcf.org. There you go. Then, um, brothers and sisters, of course, uh, as uh, uh, brothers and sisters in faith, it is our, um, you know, uh, part of our worship is to give our tithes and offering. And uh, this is our lifestyle. So, um, when we give our tithes and offering, we give honor to the giver, none other than but uh, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has never, with, he didn't withhold anything. Even the best of heaven was given unto us. Amen. So how much more of the little things that we have in life? Oh, hallelujah. So we give back to this God as a form of worship, as a form of gratitude. Amen. Oh, hallelujah. People in America, we're so blessed. Lord, continue to bless America. Continue to touch this land. Continue to touch leaders, communities, people, hallelujah, families. Lord, we give our tithes and offering with gladness in our heart as we worship you. Whether we eat, drink, or give our tithes and offering, everything goes to you with gladness as a praise. So receive this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead, put your portion in the plate. And uh, um, to our uh, valued uh, live streamer, you can also do your giving via um, the uh, online. Just log in there, and then there's a donate part, and uh, you can put your donation right there. And God bless you for participating. Amen. So I'm going to call on our senior pastor, Pastor Courtney Hoff. Hey, magandang umaga po. Anybody streaming online who thinks, who's this fellow in the mask? Who is that, who is that masked man? It's Pastor Court. Hey, I am always so glad to see every face in this sanctuary. But I have to say, there's a couple of faces here today that I haven't seen in a while, and I'm so excited. Brother Ricardo, welcome back. It's wonderful to see you. This is not an opportunity for me to greet every single person here, although I easily could and would and would desire to. Um, but it's also a treat to see our sister Mercedes here. I got to visit with her a little bit this week in the office. Welcome back, Mercedes Cruz. And of course, I want to give love, blessings, and greetings to my mother-in-law, our sister Remy. Thank you for being with us today, Mom. You're looking well. We love you. Uh, there's others in the room that uh, are equally loved and equally welcomed, and I hope you feel that. And I hope you know that even though I can't see you, and you hopefully can see me, I hope you see on my face the joy that I would have if I was face-to-face -face with you, because we're so grateful for your streaming with us. Maybe you're a guest today, and I've never gotten to see you face-to-face. -face. 
or maybe you're watching this at some future point because it's a recording or reading it, however these words, this face may greet you, you can be sure of this. The real greeting from this word is from the Lord because this word is from the Lord because this word is from the Lord. And so that's the greeting that comes to you today. And I pray that you receive it with all the joy intended for you within it. For there is indeed joy and life in the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, when you have a thought in your head and you recognize it as a good thought and you're right, ready to say it, and then the thought has a different plan. I had a thought just a moment ago, and I'm sure it was a good thing to say, but I'm trying to buy time because somewhere the thought went, and I don't know where the thought was. So something is going to come back to me at some point. It may be during the sermon, and I'll go, you know what? I remember what it was that I was going to say. It may likely be sometime in the next four days, and then I'll just be alone and think, that's what I was going to say. But I guess the whole point of this is to say, if you ever have that experience, I do too. Sometimes it happens in the pulpit. Well, in any case, the word of the Lord, it never flees. His word is here. So as we come to this word, let's pray to receive from this word today what God intends, the purpose of his message for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures, holy, righteous, and pure. And as we turn to them, we turn our hearts to you. And we open our ears to you. We yield our minds to you. We bring our cares and concerns to you and we lay them at your feet. We place them on your altar. Like a sacrifice of old, Lord, we put upon your altar those things that we've done wrong, those things about which we worry, those things yet to come about which we are concerned. We place them all before you as we place ourselves in your hands. And we ask for your wisdom and for your will to be done. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When Pastor Hinge was talking about our PSOM class, uh, I was noting that the subjects of our study are very much, in that class, are very much the subjects of our message in this sermon series that we are beginning today. Covenant and destiny. Prophets and prophecy. And, of course, also revelation and eternity. Well, it's a great class, and you can still join. <laughs> Today is still open, and in fact, if you want to audit, you can audit for free. If you send me a text or an email to info at mypcf.org before noon today, I'll give you the info for how to log in on class today, or you can send it to me anytime in the next two weeks from the time of this message, that is anytime up to uh, April uh, 11th, and uh, I'll send you the login info for our next class, because uh, as was mentioned, we're taking a break a week off for Easter. But to the point of today's message, which in fact utilizes that very term, the point, because this series that I'm beginning today, which will continue through our Good Friday service this coming Friday, April 2nd, and which will conclude in our Resurrection Sunday morning series, or service, I should say, a week from today, Easter Sunday, uh, April 4th, 2021, we will be looking at the point of sacrifice. You could turn to somebody next to you and even point at them when you do it and say, we're talking about the point of sacrifice. Turn to somebody and you say, the point of sacrifice. What do you feel when somebody points their finger at you? It doesn't usually feel good, does it? That's pointing, right? In fact, in some cultures, it's considered rude to point. 
In some cultures, you use your mouth to point, right? I think you're familiar with a culture like that. I had to learn how to, I don't know how to point with my lips very well, but it can be done. A finger pointing. Well, you know the old adage, when you point one finger at somebody else, four others are pointing back to you, or at least three, right? I don't know. Your thumb could be going in a variety of directions. There's a reason why when a finger is pointed at us, it feels uncomfortable. We don't like to be at the point of a finger, much less the point of a gun or the point of a knife, right? Point can also be the tip of a weapon, the point of a spear. But it can also be a very useful thing. After all, if I'm asking for directions, what I usually need is for somebody to give me some pointers, some tips on where to go. And this series, The Point of Sacrifice, is really about all of those things that I've just described. It is about a sharp, incisive, focused place where the Lord intends to penetrate into our lives. We may not want to be at the point of a knife, but if you're going in for surgery, it's important that you be at the point of the scalpel. You might not want to be, but you might need to be if that surgery is necessary to save your life. And that's the idea of sacrifice in the scriptures. Something that is necessary to save your life. I'll tell you, as unpleasant as being at the point of a knife might sound, you would not want to go into surgery with a surgeon who intended to open you up with a spoon. A spoon may be very pleasant and far less threatening, but it isn't useful as a tool to get into the place where the problem exists and to give you the grace to bring healing to it. Speaking of grace, will you give me grace to communicate with the team in the booth here? I see some stuff going on on the screen that makes me wonder, are these slides giving you troubles or we're good to go? We're good to go. I got the point up, the thumbs up from Brother Marco. Thank you. What a wonderful team. So grateful for all of you that have helped. Pastor Art and the worship team as well. Pastor Hinji on the platform, always so useful and helpful. What a blessing. So it's necessary for something to be sharp if it's going to get in deep to do the good that it's intended to do. It's necessary for directions to be clear and concise and pointed in order for them to grant the guidance that you and I need. And just like a sign on the road can give you an arrow that points you in a direction, not only is that giving you guidance, but it's, a provide, it's providing a symbol by which that guidance comes clear. And so when we're talking about the point of sacrifice, we are talking about things that provide signs and symbols, but we are also talking about a sacrament of God's grace by which you and I receive healing and forgiveness, deliverance, and the infusion, the injection, if you will, of life. As I mentioned, this is a series that will take us through Holy Week or the Passion Week, which is the traditional term for this time that we are uh, initiating today. Today is Palm Sunday. It is the day in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the last week of his life. Sometime around the year 30 A.D. In the, uh, in the common era, the Christian era, after the birth of Christ, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem in the spring during the days leading up to the Passover feast, the festival in Judaism 
that acknowledges and remembers God's deliverance of his people Israel out of enslavement in Egypt and through the uh, Red Sea and into the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. And Passover particularly commemorates that time when God really drove his point home. He really brought home the point that he was victorious over every enemy. The greatest empire in the world at the time of ancient Israel, when they were enslaved in Egypt, was itself Egypt. And they were slaves there. And Egypt didn't intend to set them free. And Egypt, with all its military might, all its resource wealth, all its pride and all its gods, was brought to its knees when God brought his point home by killing the firstborn son in every home in the land except those that were covered by the blood of a sacrifice. The blood of a lamb and the angel of death passed over. That's the point of sacrifice. To give a symbol that would be a sign. But more than that, to set people free. Hallelujah. And yet, without the shedding of blood, there can be no sign. There would be no symbol. There would be no freedom. So, God had made his point at Passover, and he would do it again. Jesus, entering into Jerusalem, knew that he was headed not only to celebrate the Passover with the Passover lamb, but to sanctify the Passover as the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb of God, Agnus Dei. That's the Latin phrase for lamb of God slain before the founding of the world. In other words, it was always God's plan that he would sacrifice himself for us. And every sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament, in the days of the Hebrew Scriptures, was a sacrifice that anticipated that sacrifice that was to come. And you and I, whenever we remember it, whenever we commemorate the gift of Christ's life for us on the cross with communion, as we will do this coming Friday, as we will do again a week from today on Resurrection Sunday, we commemorate that Jesus Christ died for us. He shed his blood and gave his body for us. And that was his purpose. You remember at the beginning of this year of purpose, as the Lord has said to us, 2021 is to be in our minds and in our spirit, a year of purpose. We had a series of teachings focused on for this very purpose. And Jesus said, I came for this very purpose, to testify to the truth. The truth is that there is a need for salvation. The truth is that sacrifice satisfies that need. The truth is that the blood of animals cannot satisfy that need except as a symbol and sign that points to the blood of the Savior who fully satisfies that need. The truth is that you and I need a Savior and that Jesus is it. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection. That's why Jesus went to the cross for that very purpose to die for us, to forgive our sin, to save our souls, and to rise again with life and hope for you and I. Because inasmuch as he died for us, his life is a promise that in him we live. That's the point of sacrifice. And it's really the point of Palm Sunday. It's what we're going to be looking at in this series also on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. 
So as I've mentioned, this is a series, and by the way, if you hear only one of these, they'll stand alone. So invite people to join us on Good Friday or Easter Sunday. They don't have to be a part of this progressive series in order to understand the messages that will be brought. And I encourage you to invite people because this is a message for all people. And it may very well be a question that many people have. In fact, those who aren't very familiar with the Bible still generally know that the Bible talks about things like animal sacrifice. They know that somewhere in the Bible it talks about animals being killed and blood being poured out, and they may wonder what that is all about. And sometimes people are disturbed even by the idea of Jesus on the cross, suffering, having been whipped, bleeding, sweating, crying, moaning. And people think, what kind of a religion is this that seems to celebrate such a gruesome thing? It's a misunderstanding of the purpose of sacrifice, but it's an understandable one. Let me tell you a story about something that happened over 20 years ago now. She was a, a pretty young woman, very vivacious, full of charm and personality, and also extremely effective in her job, which was, like me, waiting tables. It's been two decades since I served as a waiter in restaurants, but I did it for many years. And I can tell you, it is a very intense kind of labor. I know we think of it as a re relatively minimal kind of job, although, you know, to get a good waiting job in L.A. is almost as hard as getting a good acting job. And it's all the same people, too, so it's kind of amusing. But in any case, it's a competitive industry. It takes a lot out of you. It takes a lot of energy. Well, she had that in spades. And she was somebody who was herself a self-confessed party girl. So when people are coming to the end of their shift, a lot of times in the break room or in a, a preparation area, there's a lot of chatter that goes on among servers, which is the preferred term, or at least it used to be in the industry, talking about, well, what are you doing when you get off? You know, or people are excited about where they're going to go. At that time, I was involved in a ministry that I really loved, and I'd like to see initiated here again. And if it weren't for COVID, we would have done it last year. And we will do it. The time is coming when we will be able to activate this a ministry of outreach to the imprisoned. I was involved in a ministry that went to Juvenile Hall, Barry J. Nidorf Juvenile Hall, in fact, in Silmar, here in L.A. County, on a regular basis. And I really loved that experience. It was an extraordinary opportunity to interact with people who obviously were at a very difficult time in their lives, young people guilty of um, really very violent crimes in most cases, and uh, who also had a lot of challenges typically in their home life or in their background and rearing, some of whom were very open to hearing about the Lord, some of whom even loved the Lord but recognized that they were having difficulty walking with him, some who had no interest in that. But it was our opportunity to go in and talk about the gospel and share about Jesus and the love of the Lord. And so I would talk about that with my coworkers when I was waiting tables. People would be talking about the parties they were going to, and sometimes I went to parties too. I don't want you to think that I was just Charlie Church, but they probably saw me that way, and I guess I was fairly close to that. Not that that's any kind of a commendation. But people were respectful. But when they were talking about the stuff that they would go and do, sometimes I'd say, well, I'm going to jail. <laughs> what did you do? And it'd be a great opportunity for me to share about how I was going to go and talk with people about Jesus. And whenever I did, if anybody expressed any kind of interest at all, and sometimes even if they didn't, as long as we were having the conversation, I would often say to them, you know, if you'd like to come with me, we can have a guest. And I can arrange for you to come and see what we do if you just want to be a part of it. I never had anybody take me up on that offer except one, the party girl. She said to me one time, you know, I think it's great that you do that. I really love that you do that. 
And I could, I could really not imagine doing that, but I, I'm so curious. I would love to go. And I said, we would love to have you. And I was kind of surprised that of all the people, she was the one that I thought, well, this will be great. But I told her, dress appropriately, you know, because you get the point. She, she knew how to um, present herself in a very appealing way. It works well as a waitress, I suppose. She, she was, she was uh, convinced that that uh, was a great way to make good tips. And uh, it seemed to work for her. But I said, you know, when you're coming into juvenile hall, you really want to be toned down. Uh, and I did mention to her, you know, the restrictions. There was training that, that even a, a guest would have to go through. But it was something that you could go over in half an hour and have them prepared. And so I explained to her what would occur, what we would do. We would pray together outside as a group. We would go through the procedures to get inside, all the protocols. Once we were inside, there was a program. I explained what that would be like. I did my best to try and give her, uh, you know, the, the lay of the land of what it would be like. And it was about an hour, 90 minutes, something like that. And when we came out, there was such a glow on her. I knew that, you know, she was somebody who, she was not a Christian. Uh, she did not attend church. She was not familiar with the Bible in any particular way. Um, but she really loved the idea of reaching out in kindness to people who were in trouble. And she really loved the idea of trying to help troubled kids and um, I could tell that it had been very meaningful for her. And she kept saying, I just feel so good. It just makes me feel so happy. And this is really wonderful. It's so great that you all are doing this. She said, I do have one question. There was something that was so weird. Why did you all keep talking about blood all the time? And when she said that, I couldn't place what she was talking about for a moment. I, blood? When did we talk about blood? Because the way she said it and the way she presented it was as if you were talking about a crime scene you know, or, or an accident. Why were you talking about gore, that gory blood all over you? And then it dawned on me what she was talking about was that we had, as it used to be said commonly, pled the blood of Jesus. We had prayed about the blood of Jesus. Before we had gone in, when we prayed, somebody had prayed, Lord, cover us in your blood. That's what she was talking about. And of course, it's very understandable. In fact, you may be listening or watching this and thinking, yeah, what does that phrase mean? Why would you pray that way? It almost seems off-putting. And it's understandable, isn't it? But it's also an opportunity to talk about how there is blessing in the blood. Amen. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Bible, the Lord says the life is in the blood. And it is indeed, isn't it? After all, when somebody has been in a major accident and they've lost blood, one of the things that they often frequently need is a blood transfusion. Blood is very important to the entire processing of the systems of the body. It is obviously essential to life. And it's in that sense that we understand the blood of Jesus to be a blessing because it flows with his life, because it has healing properties, and because you need that healing, and because you want that life, you desire to be covered in blood, not out of some gory notion of, of just purely the symbol effect of it, but the real powerful actual transaction that occurs because of the power of the blood of Christ. When we talk about point, as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, we can think of it in the most literal sense. A point in space, a point at the tip of a knife, a point that is sharp and penetrating. But, as I mentioned, we can also consider it symbolically, a sign that allows us to see a direction 
that gives us guidance. But ultimately, all of those things have to have a metaphorical point. In other words, a purpose, a reason. They are designed for something. What good is a sign that points nowhere, right? That's like something out of Alice in Wonderland. Arrows in every direction, but no guidance. So a sign has to point to something real. A knife has to be put to an actual purpose in order to satisfy the purpose of the knife. And that's what sacrifice also does. So we might say, what is the purpose of sacrifice? And that's what I'm trying to get at in this title. The point of sacrifice is to consider what is its purpose. Why did God design such a system? After all, if the blood of bulls and lambs was no good for getting rid of sin, then why tell the people of Israel to do it for hundreds and thousands of years? What is the purpose? What is the point? What is the significance? If we say, well, it's a symbol, a symbol of what? If it is, it's a signifier, a sign, what is the sign actually pointing to? And in the end, if it's all just symbols and signs, it's all just sleight of hand. That's the idea that sometimes people get. All of that stuff is just so much Christian babble, just so much signs and symbols, but not relating to anything. But the reality is, all of those signs and symbols come home and find their place at the point of sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. There is an actual effect. Sacrifice is what saves you. There is no salvation without sacrifice. There is no salvation without the shedding of blood. People think, well, why doesn't God just say, I forgive you? But what would that mean? It would just be a sign like Shakespeare said of life, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. It'd be like a, a, a witch doctor saying, I heal you, but there's no actual effect. But a real doctor said, I can save you, but I've got to do something to stop the disease and bring the cure. Sacrifice is what saves us but not the sacrifice of animals, because if animals themselves need to be saved, then how can they save us? Not the sacrifices of priests, because as the book of Hebrews said, every priest who brought a sacrifice for the people was among the people who needed the sacrifice. But Christ came as a great high priest who had no sin in himself, but emptied himself of all. All of his blood poured out for us. All of his holiness poured out to us so that he could take upon himself our sin and grant unto us the benefit and blessing of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his life. Sacrifice is a symbol that serves as a sign, but it has a real effect, and the real effect is salvation. Now, we can see this even in the Old Testament. In other words, as I mentioned when I said that this message relates in many ways to the covenant and destiny prophets and prophecy, revelation and eternity, subject matter of the class I'm teaching right now, here's what I'm getting at. God made a covenant long before Jesus was born in the stable in Bethlehem. And that covenant was a real agreement, a real arrangement with a man named Abraham. But in order for Abraham to know who God was and to know what God was promising, there was a need for that covenant 
to be symbolized so that he could understand the nature of it, how real, how powerful, how, how soberly he needed to enter into it. And then there were actions that he was called to take. Now, his actions did not create the covenant. And his actions alone could not fulfill the covenant. But what his actions did were a sign of his trust. And yet, his trust, if it's placed in something that doesn't have a real effect, is no good. The placebo effect is not enough to save you from sin. Let me say it again. The placebo effect is not enough to save you from sin. You know what that means? Just because you think that you don't have sin doesn't mean that you're not going to die from it. Just because you think that you have something that excuses your sin doesn't mean that it will work. Thinking is not enough to make it so. There is a need for there to be a real, actual healing component. But like a check that isn't deposited or a medication that isn't filled and administered, it's no good to you if you don't take the drug that heals you. If you don't take the pill, if you don't receive the inoculation, then what good is it to you? It's still powerful in and of itself, but you haven't received it. So Abraham, as a sign of his agreement and of his reception, engages in sacrifice. But ultimately, the sacrifices that occur in Genesis 15, 17, and even in 22, all relate to the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, the reason they're powerful and meaningful is because God is present in them, and God knows what will fulfill them, the blood of his own son. In Genesis 15, the Lord comes to Abraham and says, I am going to give you an heir, a son, who will be for you a lineage. Out of him will come a household for you, a nation, even nations. I will do this. I'm choosing to do it. And the sign of that treaty, the symbol of how that treaty, that covenant arrangement would be held was common in the ancient world. In fact, if you're in my class, we talked about this last week. The kind of covenant that God makes with Abraham is the kind of covenant that rulers and kings made with vassal people, uh, vassal rulers, lesser rulers, in the times in which Abraham was living. A more powerful entity would say, I will come and make an arrangement with you. It's not something that the lesser power, the, 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 the vassal entity, could initiate. It's only something that the greater king could do out of his magnanimity, out of his, his benevolence, come and say, I want to make a treaty with you, and I will protect you, I will provide for you, I will treat you as my own, and all you have to do is just be loyal to me, and trust me, and believe me. And after all, if this king has the greater army, and the greater treasure, and the greater territory, then the little governor who's agreeing to it, that has no army or only a small army, no treasury or only a small treasury, no land or only a very small part of land, would never be able to force the king to do it, right? So it can only operate by trust. Now, the king could wipe out the lesser power. The king could wipe out that little village mayor or, or, or regional governor without any difficulty. But the king says, I want to be for you, not against you. And all I'm asking is that you would be with me. And that's what God offers to us. Even as he offered it to Abraham, he offers it to you and I today. But he did it with Abraham in terms that Abraham would recognize. If you and I would recognize God coming with a big sheaf of mortgage papers or something like that, perhaps that's what would seem familiar to us. For Abraham, the way you knew that somebody was serious was that they would sacrifice animals. In Genesis 15, the Lord says to Abraham, bring these animals and split them. 
and it sounds gruesome, and it is a shame for those animals who gave their lives for this covenant. But they were split in two, and the pieces were on either side of an aisle. And then the Lord is described as coming down that aisle. Now, the Lord is described as going through that aisle in the same elements by which he would ultimately lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery into the promised land. He is a smoking, burning presence. There's fire and smoke of an oven that comes down this, this aisle. It seems very strange to us until you begin to recognize this is God saying, my spirit is present with you. This is God saying, there is a need for the shedding of blood because the blood acknowledges this is a life or death agreement. In fact, the symbol of those animals was to say, essentially, this is what would happen to me if I break the treaty. If I break the treaty, I will be broken. If I fail to hold true to what I'm promising, then you can cut me apart. I will bleed for this treaty because I believe in this treaty. That's what those animals say. That's what God is saying. And in fact, God is the one who bled for it. God's walking through the blood even then and saying, my blood is how I swear to this. That's how you'll know that it's true. It's a symbol of the truth. But what about you, Abraham? What will you do? And everyone in your household, everyone that comes down your line, how can you show through some sign that sheds a bit of your blood that you recognize the power of mine? In Genesis 17, the sign of the covenant is given. Abraham, you will be circumcised. A little bit of skin, but in a very important place. Talk about the point of sacrifice. <laughs> no joke, that was the sign of the covenant. And there was shedding of blood. Now every male born in that, in that line of Abraham would carry the sign. And every woman who mated with a male in the line of Abraham would know that she was part of the covenant as well. And every child born of that woman out of that line would be born under the sign under the blood, just as they had been under the blood of the lamb in Passover. But if the sign itself is not related to faith in the truth of what is actually done by the blood, then the sign becomes empty. This is actually what we were talking about in Romans, in our series in Romans a few weeks ago, right? When Paul was talking about the faith of Abraham, and he was saying, the sign of the covenant is nothing without the faith of the Father. And the faith of the Father is nothing without the fullness of the promise of the Spirit of God and the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. So there is real salvation in the covenant. On Friday, we're going to look at Genesis 22. That's a time when God has answered. He has fulfilled he promised, you'll have a son, Abraham. And even though Abraham aged far past the time when he could imagine being the father of a son, and all the more so his wife, Sarah, too old to bear a child, and yet she conceived his child and bore his child, and they named that child for the reaction that they had. They named him Isaac. Excuse me. Abraham, Isaac named Abraham. Abraham named Isaac. Just erase the last 20 seconds. Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. And that son, named for laughter and joy, was the fulfillment of God's promise to them. And then the Lord comes in Genesis 22 and says to Abraham, go up onto the mountain and sacrifice your son. Why? What's the point? 
What was the point, God, of you making this promise if what you intended was to take the promise away from me? Oh, my. Have you ever had a conversation with God like that before? I've had a lot of those conversations. What was the point of making me, God, if this was what you were going to do next? What was the point of having me go through all of that if we arrived at this place and you're not going to help? If now you're going to hurt, you're going against me. But wait a minute, what was the covenant? I will be for you, not against you. I will be with you. I won't leave you. I will fulfill the promise. But remember this. I'm in charge. I'm the higher power, says the Lord. Yours is to trust all the way to the shedding of blood. God provides when he calls Abraham to make the sacrifice on the mountain. We'll talk about it on Friday. But... Ultimately, what that sacrifice in Genesis 22 points to, as do those in 15 and 17, is to Christ. And so I want to talk about the sacrifices of Jesus. In Jesus, we obviously recognize the ultimate sacrifice of all sacrifices, which is Christ on the cross. Like Paul said, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, this is the sum total of our salvation. The fact that Jesus came, that he died, and that that death was effected as proven by his resurrection. If he died and didn't rise again, we couldn't have any confidence that the death did any good. But it's because he rose again that you can know the death on the cross provided the blood that you and I need. And the resurrection from the grave provides the proof that there is life ahead for all who hope in him. So Jesus came for that very purpose. But also that purpose permeates and penetrates everything of who Christ is. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. It's his very nature to be in service to people, to be in submission to the Father, to be in the place of holy sacrifice for us, for you and I. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, this is the way that people of the kingdom are supposed to live. Not like people who are lording it over others, not as those who look for our advantages and think only of our desires, but instead one who comes to serve others. In the world, the way that you demonstrate that you're important is to be more important than someone else. How do you know that somebody's important when they've got people who serve them? Assistants, drivers, managers, publicists, right? When they've got staff and team and support. Somebody who's got their name at the top of the list. Somebody who, I have to, you know, I have to recognize as, as the quote-unquote leader of the church, it would be easy to think of myself in those terms but it's dangerous to do so even though the reality is there's a functional role that I am called to serve there. But it isn't so much about me. It's about the purpose of that role. Anyone in that role needs to remember, I'm not here to be served, but to serve. And that's what Jesus is saying, right? It's hard to remember that. It's easy to forget. But Jesus says that's the point. The whole point is be one who serves others. Jesus goes so far as to say not only to serve, but to give his life. As a ransom. And notice what he says here. If you want to be great, you must first be a slave. 
he uses the exact word, doulos, that Paul uses for himself in Romans 1.1. Paulus doulos, a slave. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on slaves of righteousness. Jesus himself says, I came to be a slave to righteousness. And if you want to be like me, you've got to be a slave to righteousness too. Humble yourself and serve. Submit yourself. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane literally means olive press. It's the place where the olives that had been harvested would be pressed so that the oil would come out. Oil press, Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden of olive trees. They're still there. Many of them are hundreds, perhaps thousands of years old. It's possible, though it's difficult to date them because they are hollow in the middle, and so it's hard to do uh, the dating that can be done on other types of trees. But it's possible that some of the olive trees that are still there in Jerusalem in Gethsemane today, maybe some of you have been there as I have, may have been there when Christ was there. In that moment, on Thursday night of this week, before Good Friday, Jesus is praying and saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. The cup of what? The cup of his blood that he's just consecrated. But he's saying, if it's possible, this is not what I would desire. And how easy it might have been for Jesus to pray. And don't think that it wasn't a temptation to pray. What's the point of this, God? Especially when that point was pointing at him. And you and I, if you bundle together all your worst moments, the lowest times, the deepest sufferings, when you have suffered death, when you have lost all hope, when you have done something so wrong you can't even bear to face the person that you did it to because you are so ashamed, when you have been so hurt that you can't even bear to face the person who did it to you because you are so infuriated, if you put together all of those moments from all of your life, that is only a small fractional drop in the ocean of sin that was about to overwhelm our Lord who didn't do it all who wasn't responsible for any of it. And all of that is as nothing to the even sharper place of division when Christ, who is himself God, would be hanging on the cross in the most exquisite agony physically possible and yet experiencing a spiritual agony far greater in which he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? The one who knew the fellowship of the Father from before the founding of the world, the one who is the living God, was left without God in all that he felt. But even as he prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done, so he prayed on the cross, into your hands I commend my spirit. I trust you. You see, I believe in this treaty and I bleed for it. But not for myself, but for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Earlier in the day, the people had said, let his blood be upon us and upon his, our children. Friends, let his blood be upon us 
and upon our children. Because we are the ones that nailed him to that cross. All those sins that you were just thinking of, that was the point. That's why he came. To do the will of him who sent him. To be a sacrifice that would bring salvation. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. When Christ came into the world, when Christ came, even as we just celebrated a few months ago at Christmas time, as a little child in the manger, he came prepared to be the man on the cross. Sacrifice and offering God you didn't desire. In other words, it was never about the symbols. It wasn't as though God were looking for a holy barbecue. That's the way the people of the ancient world thought of their gods. The reason why they sacrificed animals and brought things to their gods, money and wealth, was to feed the gods and to serve the gods. But Jesus said, I'm not interested in what you can serve me with. I came to serve you. Here, eat my body. Here, drink my blood. I'm for you. That's the point. God's saying, I never was hungry for what you could give me. But what I saw was you desperately in need. I saw you flailing. I saw you drowning. And I came to be a lifeline. I came in a body prepared to be broken. Burnt offerings and sin offerings are not what pleased the Lord. What the Lord was looking for was Christ. And Christ said, here I am. Because even though it was the will of the Father, it was necessary for the Son to submit. God will not force someone to sacrifice. You might think that way, but you're wrong. All I can tell you is, God does not force somebody to give themselves to him. In fact, sometimes we want that. And if that's what you're wanting, you need to refine your prayer. You can't be going away from God with one hand and trying to get closer to him with the other. You know what will happen? You'll get torn apart. But he's already been pierced so that you don't have to have that. Here I am, said Jesus, and it's been written about me in the scroll. Understand that as the scriptures. I have come to do your will, my God, to be the sacrifice. Psalm 40 says it. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, but they were offered in accordance with the law. They were signs and symbols. They were an opportunity for people to see the Lord, to understand who he is, to understand their need. And it was an opportunity for people to exhibit their faith and to show their trust. But the whole point was to look towards the one who was to come, and that is Christ. Here I am, I've come to do your will. Now, he set aside the first to establish the second. Understand it the way Paul has been talking about law and grace. What it really is saying is the first was the sign, but it pointed to the fulfillment. And so the first has done its job of pointing to the one who did the job on the cross. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord once for all. Day after day, the priests would bring the sacrifices in the temple, but it could never take away all of their sin. But when this priest, this great high priest, Jesus Christ, offered himself on the cross one time for all time, then 
he ascended to the right hand of God. In other words, he ascended to the place of enthronement as the supreme power in all creation. And he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is the covenant. This is the point. After that time, the Lord says, I will write my law in their hearts. You know what he's saying? I will inscribe it. And you know how? The point of sacrifice is the sharp place where the name of the Lord and the will of the Lord gets written in our heart. To be tattooed for Christ, you know, in your soul. Their sins and lawless acts. You remember that great bolus, that bundle of burdensome sin, the darkness and desperation and despair, the hatred and the loss of hope and the sin and the shame? You remember all of that? The Lord says, I won't remember any of it anymore. It is all wiped away. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. In other words, it is not necessary to continue with showing the sign and fulfilling the symbol now that it's already been fulfilled. But inasmuch as those symbols looked forward to Christ, you and I have symbols that look back. And in the way that those symbols helped inform and educate and edify and illuminate and encourage the people of old, so you and I, when we partake of communion, we recognize that that symbol is more than just a sign. It is a sacrament by which we come into touch with the grace of God available for us. It isn't the symbols themselves that do it, but what they do is they point to the one who himself is the sacrifice. So there is a need for us to continue to commemorate, to remember. Because if you forget, then you aren't honoring the covenant. You can't break it that way, but you can break out of it. In other words, you cannot turn off God, but you can turn away from him. So that's why Paul says in Romans, and we'll see it when we get back to our series, and we are coming back to Romans after Easter, and we're going to have a guest sermon from our beloved Pastor Venita. Then in April, again, we'll get back into Romans. And in Romans 12, you see Paul saying, because of all of this, be a living sacrifice. Now, put yourself on the altar every day. And Jesus put it this way, take up your cross every day. Live in the same way that Jesus lived so that you can enjoy the same assurance that Jesus had. Paul describes it to the Philippians this way in Philippians 2. In your relationship, not just with God, but with one another. Oh, this is really where the rubber meets the road. This is where the point becomes a sharp edge, right? With each other. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature in God, uh, nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The, 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 the metaphorical description is essentially he didn't consider it something to be grabbed at, clutched, and held on to. But instead, he emptied himself. Kino, the kenosis. He poured out himself. It's a reference to the pouring out of the spirit. It's a reference to the pouring out of his blood. It's a reference to the pouring out of his life. And he became in the very nature of a slave. He came to serve and to be given as a ransom for many. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God exalted him. And you recognize that that exalted is not just a symbolic way of saying hurrah, hurrah. It means literally God took him up out of the grave. He had gone down into death and God brought him up into life. And that same power, that same arm by which God reached down to bring up Christ, which is the Spirit, the right arm of God, that's why Jesus is at the right hand of God, so that he could send the Spirit, so that you could be set free. The point of sacrifice is to be free, to have joy, to have guidance and hope, to have faith and trust and strength that will sustain. It is also to point us to the Lord to the one name given among people by which we may be saved, because there is no other name under heaven which actually achieves salvation. And God is glorified by this. Now, in the remaining few minutes of this message, I want to apply this to the moment of Palm Sunday, specifically the Lord's coming. We will talk on Friday about the submission of Christ. We'll talk about the sacrifice that Abraham was called to make in Genesis 22 and the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. And next Sunday, Resurrection Day, we will talk about the Lord's crowning, the crowning purpose of God, which is the salvation of his people. But for today, look at this passage from the prophets. We've talked about covenant and destiny. Let's talk a moment about prophets and prophecy. A prophet named Zechariah, one of the ancient Hebrew prophets in the ancient world of Israel, declared this by the Spirit of the Lord. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion is, of course, the, the city of David. It's the royal city in Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king. He's coming to you, righteous and victorious, high and mighty, powerful and strong, but not coming as a king to conquer, like a general on a war horse, but instead as a friend, humble, lowly, riding on a donkey, on the a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was a symbol in the ancient world of a friendly visit from the king. A king who was not coming to attack and assault, but a, a king who was coming to celebrate this covenant uh, uh, relationship and to be received with praise. Now Jesus, with his disciples, at this time in the last week of his earthly life, was coming to Jerusalem. And from that place where the Garden of Gethsemane is, on the other side of the Brook Kidron, as you look across the valley and you can see the old city of Jerusalem, Jesus there and Bethpage said to them, two of you go ahead into Jerusalem and um, I want you to find a donkey, or excuse me, into the village ahead, find a donkey and there's a colt there, untie him, bring it to me. If anybody says anything to you, just tell them that the Lord needs it. <laughs> what a thing, right? And they'll, they'll agree. And that's exactly what took place. You see, when the Lord speaks something prophetically, the Lord will achieve it. And even if you think that he didn't achieve it, or even if you think like Abraham, that he achieved it and then he wants to take it back, I assure you, whatever the Lord has truly promised, the Lord will truly fulfill. And Matthew himself says that this took place, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, people waving palm branches like the greeting to a king to fulfill what God had said by his spirit through Zechariah. In the book of Luke, by the way, this, this moment, Palm Sunday, is one of those moments in the life and ministry of Jesus, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, that is recorded by all four Gospels, which is an indicator to us of just how particularly important each one of those evangelists felt it was to understanding the full scope and story of Jesus. Even though many of them knew that it had already been written about, they would write about it too, because it was such a pivotal moment. And so in Luke 19... We hear Jesus describing Jerusalem after having entered in. 
He's entered in. There's been all this acclaim, but he knows that fame is not the same thing as faith. And he also knows that fame won't save you. Jesus being crowned king of Jerusalem in the first century A.D. does nothing to save you and I from our sins. In fact, there were probably many people who got greeted with a greeting like this over the years. But do any of us know any of them? If Jesus had just gone with the crowd, he would have been forgotten if possible. I don't think such a thing could ever happen, but only because of the faithfulness of Christ. But the reality is, 2,000 years later on this Sunday, the Lord's Day, a day that we say belongs to him because it's the day that he rose, even so, a week before we commemorate that, we commemorate this. We remember that Christ entered in, but we see, even in his entry, a humility in his coming. And what he says is, there's a warning And the warning is this, you've got to recognize the God that comes to you. You've got to receive him when he offers the covenant treaty of peace, because if you don't, there is a war coming, not among people, but in the heavenlies. But people will pay the penalty if they have aligned with something other than God, because in the end, the only one that can stand is God and those who stand with him. And no one can stand with him unless he gives it to them to stand. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, having done all that you can do, stand in the Lord. It's the Lord who will give you strength. It's the Lord who will make you a pillar. Every knee will bow when Christ comes, but only some will be able to rise up because whoever is humbled willingly, the Lord will exalt willingly. But if you and I were to resist him, then our own resistance becomes our defeat. Jesus describes what we recognize as the destruction of Jerusalem that will come some three decades later in the year 70 AD, but he's talking prophetically about so much more. He's talking about our world and saying there's a day coming when everything that stands up high and looks so glorious now is going to be brought down into rubble and enemies will aggregate all around and there will be death and destruction. And friends, I tell you, this word remains true. Believe it. And don't be afraid if you're trusting in the Lord. But if you are not trusting in the Lord with all my heart, I say to you, be very, very afraid because you are without hope. There is no hope outside of Christ. I guarantee it. I would give my life for that truth and I will. God grant me the ability. I pray that the preaching that I can offer in his spirit week in and week out, reveals to you the reality of this eternity. Without Christ, there is no hope. But in him, there is life. But what will we do if he comes to us and we don't recognize him? Jesus said to Jerusalem, all these things you will suffer because the Lord came to you as he said he would and fulfilled what he would do as he said he would And you didn't recognize it, and you didn't believe it, and you didn't receive it. And so, woe unto you. Woe unto you. It's not because God didn't say. It's not because God didn't show. And for heaven's sake, for your sake and mine, it's not because God didn't do. It's only because we didn't believe. But if we have believed, then continue to believe. Be patient, Mangakapati. It's a word that the Lord will bring to our reminder. 
be patient with each other and await the Lord's coming. Because he who came before, he also said, I will come again. If we believe that he came as the Christ in the cradle, if we believe that he died as the Christ on the cross, we must believe that he rose again, Christ victorious over the tomb. And if we believe all those things, then who are we to dismiss the warning and reckoning and promise that he has given? I will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, none of us know the day or the hour. Neither the day or the hour that he comes to us, nor the day or the hour that we might be called to him. But what you can be sure of is this. That day exists, and it's coming, burning like an oven, which is the very presence of God that went through the aisle, that altar of sacrifice, to say, I am here, and I will do what I have said I will do. The farmer waits patiently as he sows his seed and works his way through the seasons, the early and latter rains of the spring and the fall, because he knows that there's a harvest to be brought forth. The Lord's coming is near. Let all those who have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Lord's coming is near. Are you near to him? If not, get close now. Don't wait. You have no notion how long you have. There's no time to lose. In fact, there's everything but time to lose if you don't come close to him. He's already come to us. The judge is standing at the door knocking. Soon he will come and knock it down. So be patient, even in the face of suffering. Remember the prophets. Hundreds of years passed between the time in which Abraham saw the Lord like an oven walking down that aisle of covenant to the days when the temple was founded and the nation was born. Hundreds of more years would pass. Desperation and wars, loss and destruction, and then a renewal, a return. And then the arrival of a child and the life of a Christ and the sacrifice on the cross. And now hundreds of years have passed. Thousands of years have passed. But what is that to the Lord? To the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. And a day, why, that's like a thousand years. In other words, time is no issue to God. So don't let it be an issue to you as long as you're trusting in him. But remember this, all the time that you have, if you don't give yourself to him, it will never be enough. You cannot escape the reality that your days, like mine, are numbered. And your life, like mine, is spotted with sin. So listen to the Lord as he says, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. How? By the washing of my blood, by the giving of my son. It's for this very purpose that the Lord comes to you today and to me. Will you recognize his coming today? Don't just receive him with applause and words of Hosanna on your lips. 
It's well and good that we should respond that way. Jesus said if people don't respond that way, the very rocks would respond. But if the rocks themselves can respond that way, there's no particular merit in making that response. It's merely an acknowledgement of a reality that no one can ultimately deny. But what the Lord is looking for is people who in their hearts would say, I belong to you. Come and live in me. And I'll die to my will. Let your will be done. That's the point of sacrifice. That's the purpose of life. That's the promise of the Savior. Friend, I just have a sense that somewhere out there is someone who doesn't know the Lord yet and needs to make that acceptance. It's not that God hasn't offered himself to you, but this is your day to offer yourself to him. I know it can feel scary. And you may be thinking, I don't know if I can believe all of these things. And some of this stuff still seems kind of disturbing to me. But friend, will you trust the Lord? He'll make all things clear in their time. None of us knows everything that the mind of God knows. How could we? But we can know that God is for us and not against us. We can know that Jesus loves us. And Jesus is a person like you as well as God. He's someone that you can actually see. I mean that in the sense of the spirit. But what I mean is he's not some cloud that you can't understand. He has a voice. He has a face. He has a hand. You'll know it's his. There are holes there with your name written in them. There is a promise there. And it's that the hand reaches out to you with life. Will you put your hand into his today acknowledge your sin and accept his salvation I'm asking everybody in the room to pray in this way as well looking at the room I see a room full of believers and I bless the Lord for that but I also know that believers are those who also would say Lord wash us again in the joy and the cleansing salvation hope of your blood not that your sacrifice needs to be made again but that we once again renew our trust in you. And so all of us, let's pray together. Will you simply repeat these words after me? Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you came to earth to show me the way. I believe that you died on the cross to forgive all my sins. I'm mindful of my sins right now, Lord. And I lift them up to you. I offer myself to you. I say, I repent. And I receive the forgiveness of my sins that you offer. Wash me in your blood. Fill me with your spirit. Use me for your purpose. I belong to you. Amen. Hallelujah. That prayer has a point. It's not just a sign or a symbol, although it serves in that way. It shows that you believe, but it attaches to the power. And the power of the Lord is in you, and the power of the Lord is with you, because the blood of the Christ sets you free. Let's give an applause to the Lord. Hallelujah. In this sanctuary, this coming Friday, uh, April 2nd, at 7.30 p.m., we'll gather just like we do on Sunday. So 
You can come and be here present physically. We will be streaming uh, at mypcf.org and on our YouTube uh, channel and on Facebook. So you can also stream with us 7.30 p.m. Pacific. And the next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, 10 a.m. We also have our Tagalog service every Saturday at 9 a.m. on our patio. We invite you to be with us for these services. And we pray that the Lord would bring you blessing through this holy week. Use this week as a time to read the scriptures, to pray every day, to hear from the Lord, and to receive the joy of the Lord in your life. That's the whole point of why he came, so that you could have life and have it more abundantly. We won't have our Zoom meeting on Wednesday evening this week because of Good Friday, but we'll see you Friday, and we'll see you Sunday, and I pray that the Lord would bless you every day of this holy week in his holy name. Amen. Amen.